uh, foreigners, as sojourners. And for many of us, I don't know that we, uh, most of us, and maybe I'm wrong. You can tell me if I'm wrong. You usually do. Um, you can tell me if you haven't traveled a lot. Um, but for most of us, um, I was like this until I started walking with the Lord. I'd never really been anywhere where I was a foreigner other than like one vacation in Mexico. And so I spoke the language everywhere I was ever used to being. So this concept of being a foreigner in a distant land doesn't really, it doesn't really jive with us. We're used to being English-speaking Americans. If we travel, you, we usually go to another part of the United States. Or think about it this way, as, as English-speaking individuals, even when you go to a foreign country, many times we're kind of spoiled because most other countries know our language. And I would even submit to you this, they know it better than we do. Um, some of the folks were having a hard time understanding our tour guide, but the reality is, as I was listening to his grammar and his use of the language, he knew like three or four languages, and he spoke English better than we do. The problem was, is he didn't speak uh, American very well, because Americans really don't speak English. We have like this slang version of it, and so um, that's why we struggle with reading things like the King James Bible. There's so many words in there, and our vocabulary is so different. And so that being said, living as a foreigner or living as a sojourner is what we're called to be as believers. If e- even as far back as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham dwelt in tents, which is a non-permanent dwelling, and he traveled. And it wasn't that he was looking for a place to call home, it's that he realized that the world that we live in is not our home that the world that we live in as believers is really just a place we're visiting and we get to have an effect on it until we go home to our permanent home. We just read that a couple of weeks ago. He said uh, he, he was writing, but he was also quoting Isaiah where it said, uh, you know, all the glory of man uh, will fade just as the flower fades, the, the grass withers, it grows up and then it fades and the flower that grows from the grass that we call weeds It'll fall off of the stalk, but the word of the Lord will remain forever. And he says, just like that grass or that flower, all of the glory of man and all of its wonderfulness, even though it's great for a time, will perish over time. But the glory of our God and the words that he spoke will come to pass. Not one jot, not one tittle, not one I dotted, not one T crossed. Everything in the word of God will be fulfilled. It's not an if, it's a when. And so that being said, here in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, we'll begin with verse 11. He says to them, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and as pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak Against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of his visitation. And so he's going to talk about what it looks like to have our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Now, for us, that, may, that word may not mean anything because most of us are Gentiles. But spiritually, if you've been born again to this living hope we were just singing about, the reality is that we're no longer Gentiles, we're no longer foreigners from the kingdom of God, but we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. We are sons and daughter, daughters of the living God. 
And so with that being the case, this word Gentile really just has the idea of being a pagan, someone who worships other gods, someone who is outside of the covenant that God has made with men through his son. And so he says we need to have conduct that is honorable among non-believers, so that when they speak against us as evildoers, um, they may, by our good works, which they will be able to see. It won't be something we just talk about, but they'll be able to observe our good works, even if they don't agree with them, and they will be able to glorify God. Even if they call us wicked and evil, they say, you're evil because you did X, Y, or Z, that we would get in trouble for doing the right thing from what, for once instead of getting in trouble for doing the wrong thing, doing a sinful thing. And so um, he's going to get into some practical ways that we can submit to God. So why is submission to God necessary in the Christian life? Now, I could go throughout the Bible and do days and weeks and hours on why it's important to submit to God. But this week, the reasons that he gives in this passage from verse 11 through 25 is, number one, submission to God is necessary for us as believers because it benefits the lost world. And we'll get into why. Number two, submission to God is necessary because it glorifies God. It reveals him to a world that cannot see him. The world is blind. It's been blinded by sin. It's been blinded by lust. And it's been blinded just due to the fact that we watched enough stuff that we can no longer blush. We don't see. And, and what's funny is it says in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those with a pure heart because they can see God. But the reality is we're surrounded by people, and many times we are the people that don't have pure hearts because we've filled them with filth so we can't see the Lord. And yet the Lord purifies our hearts as we learn to trust him and as we confess our sin. And when that happens, not only will we be holy, a people set apart for God's use, but with that holiness in our lives, others will be able to see the Lord. And, and it's written in Scripture where it says, without holiness, no man can see the Lord. And yet, when God purifies our lives practically and spiritually, the Lord will reveal himself to the world through our testimony, through our works, and just through what we have to say. And number three, submission to God is necessary in the life of a believer because it benefits us. When we will submit our will, surrender it completely to Him, and give our lives over to His will for our lives, it becomes a lot less frustrating. And I have an example of that. Just the other day, here we are, we're getting ready to fly to Israel. We're doing something where we can go and grow in our relationship with the Lord. So it should be easy, right? Not necessarily. Now, I'm going to tell this story, and I'm not complaining, and, and I'm, I'm sharing with you just my experience. So don't feel bad for me. I still got to go to Israel. So I'm not complaining. I'm not whining. I'm just telling you my story. Every battle that we experience in this life is a battle of the will. Are you willing to let God control, or are you going to grip tight and, and take control yourself? Well, that's what, that's what Thursday looked like last week for me. Not last week, but the 20th. So on the 20th, we get up early. We've got all our stuff packed. We're going on a trip. And so we've got all these expectations of how this trip is going to go, right? Expectations will rob you of joy. Not that you shouldn't have any, 
But you need to submit those expectations to the Lord. So as we get ready to go, we're taking the kids to Momo's house. We're taking the dog to Mimi's house. That's my mom, Momo's, Kelly's mom. And the kids name them, right? So we, we take them, we take the kids, and then we head up the road. We're going to the airport. And we're meeting our friends there. And we're going to meet them at the cell phone lot. We've got all these plans lined out to make sure things go smoothly. We're allowing extra time. Before we leave Farmington, we get a text. Our flight's been canceled. What? What do you mean we canceled the flight? We got stuff to do. I've got plans. I've got hopes. I've been looking forward to this trip for two years. What are we going to do? Well, we can't control it. Reality is, I can call everybody at the airline I want. I don't have any connections. Uh, They don't care about me. I'm just a customer. Now, the customer's always right, um, but a customer doesn't mean the customer can do anything. So, long story short, the day became this conversation of, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And me internally going, what are we going to do? And then me wrestling with that and getting my guts all in a knot. And then at the end of the day going, I can't do anything. I'm not in control of the airlines. I'm not in control of why the flight was canceled. I can't reroute myself. So then they say, okay, we got new flights for you. You got two options. Uh, Your flight, we'll email it to you. You're going to fly from St. Louis to San Francisco, which is three hours, and then from San Francisco to Newark, which is five and a half hours. What? So inside I'm going, "Uh uh-uh, ain't doing it. I will not, I cannot eat green eggs and ham. You know, I'm not going to do that. But what happened was, the other option is, and these were the two options, and this was the greater sounding one, you can fly directly to Newark, but you will be in the airport for 12 hours waiting for your next flight. So none of those sound good to me. I have expectations that I'm not going to wait, I'm going to do. But over the course of the day, we found out we are not leaving for Israel on Thursday. We are going to have to wait. Praise the Lord. We ended up having the Persley's, uh, Steve Persley's dad was going to take us to the airport and take our vehicles back so we didn't have to pay for the garage. Well, we ended up just staying up there. Some people had to drive back to Farmington. We ended up staying up there, getting up at 5 5 a.m. the next day and going to the airport and getting our flight. And we still got to go. We just lost a day. But all day long, it was wrestling. I want to go. This is not my plan. I don't like it. I'm going to call somebody. I'm going to... But it was the Lord's will that we get diverted. Now, we find out when we get there, we get a text message. There was a group from Colorado that flew on the day that we were supposed to on Thursday. They got to Israel on time, but it not, was not without cost. They hit extreme turbulence on the way into Newark because of a major storm. About the time we would have been landing. And one of the ladies, her seatbelt came loose. The turbulence was so bad, and she hurt her arm. It was swollen all the way around here. So there was three people that had emergency, needed health help as a result of them flying in. So was the Lord redirecting us for his purposes? I don't know. Does he not love them as much as he loves us? I don't know. But the reality is God has things before us every day, and what he wants us to do is just trust him. And that's hard because we trust in ourselves more than we trust God, even if we don't admit that most of the time. So submission to God's plan is necessary because it benefits the lost, it glorifies the Lord, 
and it benefits you and I. So, for the sake of the lost, verse 11, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, those desires that are within your heart for things that God doesn't want for you because he knows they will hurt you. He says, they war against your soul. Having your conduct, instead of giving over to lust, he says, have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Say no to the flesh. Say yes to the things of the Spirit. Now, the things of the flesh come easier. They happen easily. All you got to do is just let it happen. Now, the things of the Spirit take work. And so many times we find ourselves going, you know, I could swim upstream and follow the Lord, or I could just give in, feel good for a moment, and not have it as hard. But he says we need to have our conduct honorable among those who are lost, that when they speak evil against us, they may, by our good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So how many times have you thought or heard someone say, doesn't matter how I live, God knows my heart? Well, that's the problem. He does know our hearts. And it does matter how we live because even though God knows our hearts, the lost world is watching how we live. They're watching the way that you conduct yourself. Do you want to... And they're looking for excuses to reject Jesus. Our conduct has eternal impact on those who don't know the Lord. If we are vocal about who we are as believers, and then we live as if God is not real and we reject the simplest of his commands, what it does is it gives the lost world an excuse to go, he's not really God, because look at that person who claims to follow him, and they don't. And they think they're fine. And so what does it make a difference whether or not I believe? They say they believe, and look at their works. They're doing the same thing I am. And so the question that I have for you this morning is, do you want to be the excuse that the lost world is looking for to reject Jesus? Frankly, I don't. I, I, I want to do everything in my power to point people to the Lord through the reality of his interaction and change in my life. Now, many of you don't know me before Jesus. You didn't know me before Jesus. And I'm still trying to find a way to share my testimony on a Sunday morning or in some other form or fashion because the reality is, is I'm a changed cat. I am different than I was. And I should be, because Jesus, if he's truly had an impact on my life, the things that I used to just let go and just do and go for it, they shouldn't be there anymore. I should be different. And Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 says this. It says, let your light so shine before men that when they see your good works, they may glorify your God, which is in heaven. So our lives should be changed for the sake of those who are lost. But not just for the sake of those who are lost, also for the Lord's sake, for His glory, for Him to be revealed, but also for Him to be glorified. Every knee will bow one day, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. (laughs) And that's what we'll be singing. Glory and honor and wisdom and power ascribed to Him. So the way that we conduct ourselves ought to also advertise the Lord's character and his attributes to the world. And if you want an example, now we're going to talk about government, but I've spent time on that in the past, so we're not going to go too deep into it. But in um, verse 13, he continues to say, Therefore, 
Remember, the context is he's begging them as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts and have conduct that's honorable among non-believers. So he says in verse 13, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Now, this is hard for us because when we're against something, we ain't doing nothing you tell us that we disagree with. But the word ordinance there does not mean every law that's passed, by the way. The word ordinance means due process. Live within the context and in the government that you live in. If you look at the Apostle Paul who wrote, nope, sorry, this is Peter, but Paul himself who wrote Romans 13, and we're going to read it here in a little bit, he submitted himself to Rome as a citizen. He was a citizen of Rome, and yet he was a citizen ultimately of heaven. Yet when people reviled him, when people cursed him, when he was about to be lashed, he subjected himself to the law and he said, look, are you beating me without a trial? I'm a Roman citizen. He was using his citizenship in order to get out of the beating, but he didn't say, you can't beat me. He said, don't you know I'm a Roman citizen? He subjected himself to them and their judgment. And when the, as a Roman citizen, you are protected by the Roman government. You are allowed a due process, but you are, if you were a slave in his time, they wouldn't give you the time of day. They'd just beat you at the thought that you might be somebody that's against them. And so you have rights, but not, not to use those rights, and we'll get to that in a minute, as a license to do whatever I want, but to use those rights as uh, building blocks for others. And so he says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Now, turn with me real quick to Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Because Paul kind of teaches basically the same thing with slightly different words when he talks about government. And Paul writes this to a government that he did not agree with, a government that was taking Christians and impaling them on poles, pouring hot oil over them, setting it on fire, and then leaving them there as street posts, lighting the streets. And so when he says this, he's not saying, you know, as long as you live around a government you agree with, you should submit to what they tell you. He's saying, God places government in the place that he does, and so live within the context of that government, even if it costs you. Jesus did, right? Jesus submitted to his government. He submitted to punishment. He submitted to the punishment of death under the government he lived under, and it meant that for our good. But in Romans chapter 13, he says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. So even ungodly governments, God places them there, and God uses them for his purposes, even though we can't always see how that could possibly happen. He says, and, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. He chooses them. This is hard for us to accept. Now, it might be easy for you to accept right now with our current government structure and the one that's at the top, but wait a few years and see if it still is easy to submit to. Because he doesn't say if they're not liberals, by the way. He doesn't say if they are liberals. He says all government and authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, 
Why don't you wrestle with, that, with God in prayer over that one? Because I didn't say it. He did. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, although you might feel like they are, but to the evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, then be afraid. What did Jesus say about this? He said, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body only. He says, be afraid of the one who can kill the body and also eternally separate you from him. Kill the soul. And so the reality is, whether or not you are willing to submit yourself to every law that's made, do what is good according to God's standard, and even if the government punishes you, guess what? You will have praise. You'll be honorable. You'll be praised by the Lord. To live in the fear of God means to depart from works of iniquity. He says in verse uh, 3, excuse me, verse 4, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for your conscience sake. We don't need to sin against our consciences. So, you know, if the government says you cannot have your children, you can only have two kids, you got to kill one if you have another one. Or if you got to, you know, the reality is the, the Israelites lived in a government like that. Uh, China, for years, you can only have so many kids. If you have more, so the reality is um, the, the world that we live in, um, we have to be subject to it. And, and you know, notice what, Notice what Moses' mom did with him. At the time that Moses' mom was pregnant, if you had a child and he was a male, you were supposed to throw him into the Nile. And they were told, everybody that was a slave master over the Israelites at the time, if these people continue to increase, they're going to get stronger than us. So let's weed them out. Let's take their children and throw them in the Nile if they have males. And so what would the moms do? They would make sure to be really quiet when they had their babies. They would protect them. They would nurse them. And they would trust the Lord that he was going to take care of them. In the case of Moses' mother, she hid him. And then when he was weaned, put him in a basket, built an ark for him, and put him in the Nile, trusting that the Lord was going to take the care of him. And when she did that, the Lord providentially sent Moses, which means out of water, to the daughter of Pharaoh, who raised him as his own, and she actually got to nurse her own child and tell him about the Hebrew God that took care of them the whole time. And ultimately, his life was saved. But um, so there are times where we are not to do what the government tells us, but we're to do what is right. There is a higher law than just the law of the land. But most of the time as Americans that we use this right to disobey the government, it's actually not uh, to the point where it's actually something we need to die on that hill. It's usually something else. It's usually something that, that we need to just give over to him and trust him in it. So in 1 Peter chapter 13 through 17, he continues in verse 15, for this is the will of God. How many of you have ever thought in your life, I wonder what God's will is in this situation? 
Here's one of those places where you can know where he writes specifically, this is God's will. For this is the will of God, verse 15, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free yet not using your freedom as a cloak for vice to continue in sin, but as bondservants of God. So in verse 15 he says this, and I think that it's interesting. This is the will of God that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Jesus was an awesome example of this, by the way. Jesus, all the time, he'd be asked these questions so that they could test him. Is he going to obey the commands of God or is he going to blaspheme the Lord? And so the religious people would come to Jesus and ask him questions about what they should do about certain situations. And I thought I had it in here. No, it's not there. Not there. There it is. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. I know, I turned back. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. There was a group that sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. They were setting a trap for Jesus. They were going to try and, and basically shut down his ministry. So when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one's opinion of you. For you do not regard the person of men, but you teach the way of God in truth. So is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, in that day, if you were to say, no, you're not supposed to pay taxes, then you'd be taken off to jail or even brutally murdered. Um, Or is it unlawful? Now, to the Jews, they looked at the inscription that was on a coin, and they saw that as an image. They saw that as idol worship. So to say, no, don't pay it, was blasphemy against the government. And to say, yes, you should pay your taxes, was blasphemy against God in their eyes. And so he's saying this question to make him an enemy of somebody. And Jesus asks them, he said, it says here that Mark writes, he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius, which was one of their coins, that I may see it. So they brought him a denarius, and he held it up, and he said, Whose image and inscription is on this coin? He gives them a question. What do they say? Well, it's Caesar's image. So he says, Yes, render or give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. So if Caesar says that a certain percentage has to go back to him, then you should give it. Now that preaches well, right? We all love paying taxes. So if the government says you owe them taxes, pay those taxes. Stop complaining. But he also says, rendered to God that which carries God's image. Now, what carries God's image? You and I. So, Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Give to God that which is God's. Now, many times we complain against giving to Caesar, or giving to the government, Uncle Sam, if you will, what is his. He's got a percentage coming to him. It's the law of the land. But how many times have we thought about the fact that we're cheating God of what he desires from us? He's given us breath. He's given us freedom, at least you and I. He's given us life and blood in our veins. And he's given us salvation. 
He's paid for us. Do you know that you and I have been redeemed? That's a fancy word for meaning he bought us as slaves back from the slavery of sin and death. He bought us back from Satan that we willingly gave ourselves over to. So we need to give back to God the percentage that he requires of us. And that's our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. So this is reasonable because who bought us? He did. Who deserves us? The one who paid the price. And so we get all upset that God would require us to pay what we owe the government. But the reality is many of us need to start giving to God what is his. And that's what he was telling the Pharisees. You're all worried about who do you got to pay taxes to? Uh, Do you know that you're mine? Do you know that this nation is mine and you're taking it for yourselves? And it's really mine? So um, that's an example of, it it says there in the scriptures, they didn't have anything to say to him. They marveled at at his words, which fulfills what Peter writes here. This is the will of God that by doing good, which Jesus did, you can put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. He was showing the ignorance of the Pharisees and the scribes by his answer. And because he put them to silence by the way that he conducted himself. And so also, we continue on. If you look at the story of Daniel in chapter 1, Daniel was subjected to a government that was not governed by God. It was governed by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar called for everyone to eat of his food that was in his cabinet, his wisdom cabinet. Daniel was in there. And what happens is he was pulled out of his land. who had all these recipes and kosher diets. They couldn't eat dairy with meat. And I tell you what, you don't realize how much you enjoy dairy with meat until you've been in Israel long enough. And you're like, I'd like to have some chicken in my pasta. And they're like, "Uh, it's got cheese in it, so no. And you're like, but I want meat and cheese, you know. Um, But the reality is um, they had all these dietary laws, and then they were pulled out of Israel and put in Babylon, and they were told you have to eat all this food. You have to eat the king's portion in order to be in the king's cabinet. And Daniel looked at the servant that he was subject to, the eunuch, and said, "Um, I I understand what the rules are, but uh, we have a diet, and so would you allow me to prove to you that our diet will actually make us stronger? So he he didn't demand his own way, but he said, I'm willing to submit to this, but will you let me try? And so the servant allowed him to eat their kosher diet of only certain foods, And after 10 days, he came back to inspect them. And guess what? They were more healthy than the other men in the group. And so he allowed them to continue to obey their God. But he didn't demand his way. He went through due course. He subjected himself. And because of that, they were able to do what their God told them to do in the law. They honored the government, but they disobeyed the regulation. They revealed God's goodness through due course. We could learn a lot from that. And then in Acts chapter 4 through 5, the disciples are told, you can no longer preach in this name of Jesus. We killed him to put him to silence, and here you guys are continuing to teach what he taught. You're you're subverting what we tried to do. And so what do the disciples do? They look at the men, and they respectfully say, you decide for us whether or not we should disobey God or disobey you. They were to proclaim the truth. They were to tell the whole world about Jesus. So there was this law that superseded what they were being told to do. So they let them know, we're going to disobey you, 
but we're going to disobey you to honor God. And so there are times where we're required to do that. So in verse 16, he continues. He says, as free, and this is how we are to live, as free, yet not using our freedom as a cloak for vice. Many times people will use their freedom in Christ as a cover-up for them to continue in sin, to continue to do sinful deeds. Hey, I'm free in Christ. Jesus paid it all. I'm good. I can do this, or I can watch that, or I can say this. I'm free, right? I can do whatever I want. But that's not the gospel. Jesus didn't die for our sins and take our punishment for our transgressions against God so that we can have freedom to sin more. He actually set us free so we could say no to sin, so we could be set free from the slavery of sin. He says, so don't use your freedom in order to cover up your ability and say, well, I can sin because I'm good. But instead, as bondservants of God, use your freedom as bondservants of God. So I have for you here, we're not given freedom as a weapon to fight for our rights with, excuse me, to fight with for our own benefit. Our freedoms are actually given to us as a resource to build with for the benefit of others. So our freedom in Christ is actually given to us so we can benefit and build up other believers. So what are the tools that God's given us to build up other people? How can we use our freedom to build? Verse 17 says this. He says, Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. And the tense there in the Greek is actually the continuance of these things. Keep honoring all people. Why? Because all men and women are made in the image of God. Keep loving the brethren. Love your fellow Christians, whether or not you agree with every minutia of doctrine. There are some things that make people not Christians if they don't believe them. Most of the things that we have to deal with are open-handed issues. Then he says, keep fearing God. Walk in the fear of God daily, moment by moment. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord will keep you from sin. The, so, and then he says, keep honoring the king. The king is put there by God for his purposes. So honor him. Honor the position, even if you don't honor the man. It's the position that God's given him. So, verse 18, our last section for today. He says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle masters, but also to those that are harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. <laughs> Endure grief, suffering even if you don't deserve it. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for things that you do wrong or your faults, you take it patiently? You should. You deserve it. But he says here, when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, then this is commendable before God. Now, I don't say this lightly. I know what it's like to suffer for doing the right thing. I know what it's like to be treated unwell because of whatever. Uh, but the reality is, when we do it patiently, what we do is we reveal the character and the attributes of Jesus. If we can suffer long, if we can show patience with people that don't treat us well, they are going to see Jesus front row. 
and they will wonder why in the world you are not fighting back. Now, not every case is the same. So prayerfully, this is how we're to conduct ourselves as foreigners. It should make sense that we should suffer. We serve a king that's not practically the king over this world yet. Satan's in control. But the reality is that we're living for a kingdom that supersedes that and ultimately will overcome this world. So he says, when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called. Did you know that we've been called to suffer? That's not usually on the billboard, on church billboards, right? That's not, you know, but Jesus over and over again talks about if I suffered and I'm your Lord, (laughs) a servant's no greater than his master. And so to this you were called because Christ suffered also for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 53, which was a an entire chapter that 600 years before Jesus' crucifixion animates every piece of what Jesus would experience in the crucifixion. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Another word for committed there is not committed like I commit to this club or I'm committed to do this thing or pledging, but the idea is surrender. He surrendered himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore or carried our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness and by whose stripes you were healed." His scourging, when they took the cat of nine tails that had all the shards of glass and clay pots and and razor sharp things on it, and it ripped open his back, that punishment that he took brutally and didn't deserve actually brings us healing. It makes no sense to us. But that's how God set up the sacrificial system. By his stripes, you were, past tense, healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Suffering causes us as believers to look to Jesus. I don't wish suffering on anybody. I don't wish suffering on my enemies, at least at the moment, right? I don't wish suffering on on anybody because when I'm experiencing suffering, the only thing I want to do is escape it. But in our suffering, we learn that we can't trust in our own ability to get out of it. When you're truly suffering, you cannot scratch and scrape and pull and claw and grab your own bootstraps and get out of it. You're too weak. It hurts. It's overcoming. It's overwhelming. But Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So if we truly believe that, we'll look to him as how to get there. In this life, he says, you will experience persecution and tribulation, but have no fear, I've overcome the world, he said. And in Hebrews chapter 12, we find that even Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, experienced suffering, and yet it says in verse 12, therefore we also 
chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author, the beginner, the finisher, the one who will bring it to, to pass of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him patiently endured the cross. You know what the joy was that was set before him? The end result, the goal of him suffering? You and me. We're his joy. The Father offered him anything, and he picked you and I. He wanted the relationship that was broken in the garden through Adam and Eve to be brought back together. He wanted that middle wall of separation, the veil in the temple, an exact representation that we, not just anybody, could go into the presence of God. And yet, when Jesus died on the cross, you know what happened to that veil that separated the common man from where only the high priest could go? When he died, that veil was rent from top to bottom, ripped, so that anybody could come into the access that only the high priest had. Anybody could come in, no longer needing to go through a high priest, but now getting to go directly to God the Father through our high priest, Jesus Christ. And so he endured the cross, despising the shame, who for the joy was set before him, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to point out that Jesus despised. He despised the shame. People punched him. I heard a description this, this last week where um, uh, Pastor Ken Graves talked about uh, Jesus being punched. And when they punched him in the face, they put a veil over his head so he couldn't see where it was coming from. I don't know if any of you have ever taken a really hard punch or even a shove. But there's something interesting about our bodies. When you know you're going to take a blow, you prepare yourself. You kind of loosen up a little bit. Sometimes you tense up a little bit. But there's a reaction that happens where your body works in conjunction with your brain and goes, we're about to take a hit. Brace yourselves, right? But if you don't know what's coming, what happens is it's way more painful because you don't know which direction it's coming from. It's humiliating. It's, it, and I say that because just last week or two weeks ago, I was sitting there. Lucy was throwing some ball after church. It nailed me in the face, but because I didn't know it was coming, I was humiliated. Now, nobody was making fun of me. I just felt like an idiot because I got nailed with a ball and I couldn't see it coming. It's shameful. We, we feel like we should be able to protect ourselves. But Jesus despised that. He didn't like it. He came to die for us, but that didn't mean he was looking forward to it. As a matter of fact, he begged his father if there was any other way, father, if there's any other way that mankind can be reconciled back to me, that they can be saved from their sins and the punishment they deserve, please make it come to, take this cup of wrath from me, but not my will, but yours be done. So sometimes God is most glorified in us when we're suffering, just like Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. He suffered in our place, it says there in verse 24. I said this earlier, but the, in the Old Testament, the sheep died for the shepherd. He was the atoning sacrifice that would be offered in the Holy of Holies. And yet in the New Testament, this is flipped. The shepherd dies for the sheep. The good shepherd, 
he wrote, when he spoke about the good shepherd in, in John, he said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is our shepherd in heaven, verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The good shepherd always puts the sheep where they have what they need. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And I could go on, but I'm forgetting it right now. But the idea is he always put, shepherd's whole job was to put his sheep where they need to be, where they would be safe, where they would not be irritated. He anoints my head with oil. They put oil. Uh, there's a, a book written by, I um, can't remember his name, but it's called The Lord, uh, the Shepherd Seen through, the Psalm, through Psalm 23. And he describes all these aspects in Psalm 23 of why it was important. If sheep are irritated by ants and, and uh, bugs and flies, and you see this in livestock, they just, sheep especially, they're just antsy and they, they don't pay attention. And they wander off and they're just distracted. They don't watch the shepherd. And yet when they're taken care of well, um, they're always looking to the shepherd. And so I have for you there, the, the good shepherd always puts the sheep where they have what they need. Our shepherd always has you and I where we need to be. And also suffering according to the will of God, suffering his way will make you more like Jesus. You ever notice that you grow deeper in your walk with the Lord when things aren't right? I do. It's just a reality. I wish it weren't so. But the reality is if God allows suffering in your life and you suffer the way that he would have you suffer, it's going to benefit you long term. So Father, we, um, I am in awe of your care for me. And I am grateful that you used the Apostle Peter to exhort us this morning to abstain, to say no uh, to fleshly lusts. Not only for our good, but for those who don't know you. There are people surrounding us that have no hope. They've not found their hope. They're wandering around from hobby to um, exciting event to the next trip or the next conversation or the next relationship. And they're all looking for something that can only be found in you, Lord. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to stop wandering ourselves. We're supposed to know you. We're supposed to have peace with you. We're supposed to look to you in every area of our lives. And if we will do that, Father, my prayer is that we would see Jesus high and lifted up, that you would continue to draw us to yourself, that you would continue to purge our lives of iniquity, that you would continue to set us free from sin and the consequences of sin. But I also pray as we grow in our walk with you, that our walk with you would become less and less about us and more and more about your glory and you revealing yourself to those around us who are lost and still looking for truth, still looking for hope, still looking for grace, still looking for something that they cannot find in anything, not a drink, not a drug, not a relationship. There's no hope for anyone except in Jesus. And so, Father, would you get us out of the way? Would you help us to surrender all? Would you help us to give our rights over to you 
so that you would be glorified and that you would draw all men unto yourself so they could experience the peace that comes from knowing the God who came to die for them and for us. Lord, we need you in this. We cannot do this alone, so help us. In Jesus' name, amen.